Many organizations struggle when it comes to communicating and realizing their business strategies. Many workers don't even understand the strategies in their own company. Welcome to the North Star with William Ulrich. Find out where your organization stands, what you might be doing right, and where you can improve. Now, here's your host, William Ulrich. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, William Ulrich. You're listening to the North Star. Feel free to contact me by email on LinkedIn or at my website, tacticalstrategygroup.com. Today, we'll be discussing re-envisioning how organizations define and automate work with my guests, Dana Coy and Keith Swenson. Dana Coy has been engaged in software development for more than 40 years. He's been granted 11 patents in areas such as object management, data integration, and low-code application modeling. Dana has contributed to a variety of publications, including Mastering the Unpredictable, and help shape the concept of adaptive case management. Officially retired, Dana still works as a consultant. Sometimes he says uh, too much. Uh, Keith Swenson <laughs> is VP of R&D at Fujitsu America. He's widely known, uh, he's a widely known pioneer in collaboration software and web services. And he's played key roles in the development of industry standards on workflow and business process management. He previously chaired the Workflow Management Coalition and was awarded the Marvin L. Mannheim Award for Outstanding Contributions in the Field of Workflow. He's co-authored more than 10 books. His book, Mastering the Unpredictable, uh, which Dana worked on as well, uh, defined the field of adaptive case management, establishing him as a top influencer in the field. He blogs at social-bizbiz.org. Uh, you can reach Dana at uh, Dana, D-A-N-A dot Coy, K-H-O-Y-I at gmail.com. And Keith at LinkedIn at Purple Hills Books, all one word, dot com. Uh, you both have pretty deep backgrounds in software and process management. Dana, um, in addition to the work you've done, you hold 11 patents. Can you, uh, that's a lot of work and I know because I've had some experience with it, but can you provide a little bit more background on, on some of those? Sure, sure. Um, well, a lot of it has to do with working at companies that were uh, valuing the having a patent. Um, but uh, there's basically two bunches. Uh, the first set of patents go back to late 80s work that we were doing in object management and data integration technologies. Um, and uh, those were very successful. Uh, there was a lot of litigation uh, around some of them and um, uh, actually had to go and participate in a trial uh, and, and for one. Uh, the second batch uh, came around uh, much more recently related to low-code application development and model-driven development of applications. So yeah, it was a lot of fun doing the work behind those. And Keith, your work's been very extensive as well. Uh, you chaired the, the Workflow Management Coalition. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, what, what kind of work they did and, and uh, what did you do in that role? Yeah, Bill, your question really got me thinking about all the changes that have occurred in the technology field in the time that the WFMC was operating. It was really a great run. We set many of the dominant standards in the field, starting from workflow and then business process management, and then coining the term adaptive case management. Uh, WFMC defined five key capabilities necessary from diagramming processes, executing, interchange between processes, monitoring, analytics. Uh, you, you might not know this, but members of the WFMC invented web services. If you look at the mm. first proposal to the IETF, and to the world and to the first journal article about web services, all the participants were WFMC members. Mm. It, it was a huge effort. 
volunteer from a lot of people over a span of 26 years. And you think about it, when we started, the web didn't exist. This was before the Netscape days. XML was invented in that time. JSON was invented. Uh, we were starting from email messages routed through people and then orchestrating services implemented on servers. Uh, HTML became the dominant UI standard. And through all of this, the common theme was business processes. You know, as you, and then as you know, in 2010, we started to see the limitation of predefined processes. It's not a, a failure to model, but in fact, the work itself is unpredictable. So we started the movement towards adaptive case management. Uh, but eventually we ran out of things to do. BPM became a commodity. ACM is even a common module in most offerings. And it was really machine learning that tipped the tables in an entirely new direction, disrupting the BPM field. Okay, so I want to go to some basics and then we'll talk more about adaptive case management. Uh, let's uh, uh, just briefly uh, explain to people who are maybe not as familiar with the details, uh, you know, what is a business process and then why do organizations spend so much time and effort and money on them? Well, a business process will mean a number of things. It always has to do with anything that cannot be done by a single application with a single person. And all traditional data processing had been done that way. Instead, you have multiple people with different jobs, different skills, different responsibilities, multiple servers specialized in different tasks. And simple workflows just pass data from program to program, but more complex processes attempt to optimize and adjust the process, bringing the right people in at the right time, all the while making sure that that uh, all the tasks got completed. I mean, if you think back to the 80s and 90s, people would actually put documents into manila folders and they would pass the folder from person to person and folders would get lost or misrouted. Uh, then we learned to use email and this created new ways to lose and misroute things. So the original drive for business process was to eliminate mistakes uh, and then later to, to optimize them. Uh, you know, a small improvement in a large number of processes could be a big saving. And this is the core of what a business does. So the, the flow of work is essentially what we're talking about. And there were formal ways, different formal ways to model that, not, not necessarily one you mentioned. Um, and and the, uh, there was a fairly traditional way of doing that. Can, can you guys both comment on um, uh, the business process model, uh, Dana? Sure. Um, <clears throat> you know, in, in the beginning, going back to the Manila folders, a business process was often just a checklist on the inside, printed right on the inside of the cover of the Manila folder. And the folder got moved from person to person and they did their work. Um, there was clearly a lot of deficiencies. As Keith mentioned, you could lose these things, but more importantly, you, you can't be doing things in parallel. The transportation time between sites became a significant issue. Um, companies were paying a lot of money actually just to ship paper from place to place. And then the storage of the paper was expensive. So the idea of doing something electronically uh, was a big deal. Some of what I did early on was what's called, what was called digital imaging. And the idea was just to scan all that paper into a, a server and then let the people look at the images uh, to do their work. And oh. right there, there was a huge benefit just in terms of um, not moving the paper around and having more than one person able to look at the same piece of paper at the same time. Um, it got more formal. Uh, there was a bunch of different attempts at modeling the, the flow using a diagram. Um, a lot of proprietary solutions. Um, some were quite interesting and clever. Some were not so much. Um, but the idea became that you draw a diagram and you say, okay, first, you know, this happens, then you have a decision, and then it goes here, it goes there. 
Um, and that was okay for some of the initial processes people were working on that were very simplistic and very that had structure to begin with. Um, uh, paying insurance claims was like a real common example in the beginning. And you know, that tends to be well understood. There's a, there's a pathway. They, they process a lot of the same thing over and over and over again. And those were mostly successfully implemented. But then as they tried to get into more knowledge work, um, they found that it became much more difficult to model these processes. You started seeing conference rooms with wallpapering of diagrams, uh, trying to predict every possible pathway it could take. And uh, more and more projects uh, that I saw were failing, where they would be spending a lot of money and never actually getting a system out of it. Um, and that's when we started looking for alternatives. Keith, you wanna elaborate on that? Well, um, that's that's right. That was that was it. Um, we assumed early on that all work was routine. So in the 1980s, there was a big effort called office automation, and that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to take an office and we wanted to make it automated the way a factory was. And there was an assumption that anybody in the office could be replaced by a machine if you could just make that machine complex enough. And it's a, you know, it's a certain kind of foolish humility. Um, you know, Bill, we can't feel ourselves think, so we assume it must be really, really easy to do. Uh, and it turns out that thinking is actually really important. Um, and and so that that was that was where we came from, and we realized that it was harder than we originally imagined. Yeah, I remember speaking. I remember speaking to uh, one of the people who was doing work uh, in these early systems, and it was quite a shock to me when he described himself as a meat robot. <laughs> you know, he looked at the screen, he typed what he saw, and the next one came up. And it was, you know, I realized we were probably doing something wrong if, if, if somebody was relegated to being a meat robot. So the, and, and, and by the way, we should just uh, let everybody know, and please comment that uh, the vast majority of processes did follow, uh, at least the models, did follow this this design that you're talking about that, that emerged, right? And, and there's actually a standard right around uh modeling those processes so people learn those and and uh and they use them and and they use them at least in my experience they use them broadly and widely across organizations around the globe right that that's you know this, this isn't a one-off you you go to most places you're going to find a group of people called process modelers right that are doing this type of work so uh you you kind of see this as something that's like really all over the place right um yeah go ahead you do, you do. Uh, BPMN is the is a standard, but there, there's a bunch of them. They're based on uh, flow charting, uh, something that we all learned as kids. Um, but what actually happened with those models was what I call the the tyranny of the line. Uh, you know, imagine you have three things to do, uh, like walk the dog, get the groceries, and rake the yard. A process designer might make the process, you know, A, then B, then C in that order check with everybody and say, can we do it in this order? And everybody says, yeah, we can do it in that order. And, and so once that becomes written down, that's the order that it has to go through every single time. So that's the tyranny of the line. And it's possible to model the process in a much more complex way with parallel tasks and so that you have flexibility to do things in a, in a bunch of different ways because maybe you know today it's better to get the groceries before you walk the dog or vice versa. You can do that. But it's really, really complicated, and it's really hard to prove that all the different ways to do it are going to you know, all work. 
Um, so at the end, um, and, and what we found in, in researching this is that people don't use those really, really complex models. Typically what happens is a designer simply writes down A, then B, then C. It's convenient, it works well enough, and once they're drawn in a line, that's the way they get done. They, they, uh, there's a term called the happy path, uh, right? Yes. Can, can you guys uh, just tell us what that is? Well, the, for me, the, uh, it, w what happens is people come in and they, they start investigating what the, the business process, the underlying actual thing, work that needs to get done is. And they'll talk to the people who are doing the work and they'll say, oh, well, we do this. And then, then after that's done, then we do this. And, uh, you know, the, the, a naive, you know, process analyst is going to sit there and draw that little sequence of things that, that is what he's told. It isn't until you start actually getting down deeper that you realize, oh, well, we do this most of the time. But sometimes we do something different. And sometimes, you know, it's, it's unique even. It's not even something that has ever happened before. And uh, if you build your model around only the happy path and you never... Uh, think about the exceptions or the um, anomalies that, that might occur, you end up with a process that when you go out to deploy it and automate it, fails. Because mm -hmm. the users say, it's not doing the work. I can't, you know, it's not letting me do what I need to do. Um, and getting from a happy path to a f real thing is really inordinately tricky, right? Because yeah, you can find the first order complexities, great. But then there's a second order or a third order uh, complexities that you have yet to discover. Um, and the, the reality is, is trying to model um, the flow of work among people who are making complex decisions uh, breaks down. It, it becomes almost impossible to discover what the true work is. And that's what kind of um, uh, spurred the development or the thought behind uh, case management which is that you don't try and model all the connections. You let the people do their work and then they drive what happens. Um, so it's a, you need, we need to find a different approach. That doesn't mean that that structured modeling is wrong or bad. It's perfect as long as you apply it to cases where it works, right? You, you, where, where you know that this is an extremely routinized kind of piece, uh, process, that it doesn't have a lot of complexity to it. Um, it also turns out to be really good for service orchestration. Um, actually integrating um, systems instead of people. Those tend to be much, much more rigid. Now, these exceptions that occur, which are normal, right? Mm -hmm. they're, they're not really exceptions. It's just the way the world works. Uh, the people start building those exceptions into these models, right? Is that where the complexity comes from? That's when you get wallpaper. Yeah. <laughs> okay. They start drawing all the lines and all the decisions and what should be a fairly simple diagram or what people think is a simple diagram when they start turns into a, a, a diagram covering an entire wall. So I want to get into adaptive case management. So in, in Mastering the Unpredictable, and I read this 10 years ago, and I want to tell everybody if you haven't looked at it, it's a, still it's a great book. Um, I think it came out in 2010, and uh, I, I certainly took it, uh, took it very to heart. Uh, there's a line in there, um, it said 20 to 40% of all processes are predictable, which is what we're talking about here, right? But so I flipped that around and said, well, that must mean that 60 to 80% of them are unpredictable, right? Just doing some quick math in my head. <laughs> so how do we square this, right? So did this come up when you guys started planning out the book? Did, did your thinking uh, uh, sort of coalesce around these, these ideas then? Yeah, it, 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 it did. Um, the number of processes which are predictable is strongly dependent on the type of work being implemented. Uh, there are different types of work in different fields. Uh, mm -hmm. Consider automation in general. 
consider Henry Ford. Okay, he was able to automate his car assembly line because all of the work to be done was contained in a factory and each step could be designed to fit with the steps before or after it. So he had control over all aspects of a rigorous and he could make a rigorous fixed automation. But some business processes are like that. Uh, we call them straight through processes. The, the company has control over the steps and can orchestrate it that way. But a lot of other processes are completely the opposite direction. And one thing that comes to mind is, you know, imagine if you were running the Tokyo Olympics. Um, the people running that have, have met a relentless series of unpredictable turns of events, causing them to make many late changes and rearranging what everybody has to do at the last minute. There, there's almost nothing that could be automated about running an event like the Olympics, uh, certainly at the, at the high level. So you have to look at the type of work that you're trying to automate. Uh, Helmut von Moltke said, no battle plan ever survives contact with the enemy. And you can make the best plan possible, but when you get into the reality and you know that things are gonna change and the details are gonna overwhelm your plan. So there's a spectrum of different kinds of work and you wanna use these different approaches for the different kinds of work. Yeah, that's that's good advice. Um, and and I, uh, I I just want to get into um, and I, I think we're going to take a break here in a, in a, in a few seconds. But um, I think we'll start. We want to get into the whole adaptive case management. But it, it sounds like it brought uh, the, the book brought you you and both of you together. And then, uh, Keith, I know you were behind the book, uh, but then there were a lot of other people that worked on it. So uh, I think when we come back, I want to get into adaptive case management and the role it can play to address some of these issues that, that uh, we're talking about, the wallpaper issue, as, as Dana calls it. Um, you're listening to The North Star. I'm William Ulrich. We're discussing re-envisioning how organizations define and automate work with my guests, Dana Coy and Keith Swenson. You can contact Dana uh, at dana.coy, K-H-O-Y-I, at gmail.com. You can contact Keith at LinkedIn at purplebooks.com. And we'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you having trouble articulating your strategic objectives? Not sure if your program investments are aligned to your strategic vision? Wondering why your six, seven, and eight-figure program investments seem to evaporate into thin air, even as your business teams are left to add more people, take on more risk, and take heat from unhappy customers? Tactical Strategy Group's William Ulrich can help ensure that your strategic objectives translate into sustainable, successful investments. For more information, visit our website at tacticalstrategygroup.com. Business news and discussions are always changing. In order to stay ahead of the game, sometimes you need to be a follower. You can follow the Voice America Business Channel on Twitter at VoiceAMBusiness. Again, that's at VoiceAMBusiness. And stay current. Your organization is spending seven, eight, or even nine figures annually on transformation programs, and you're questioning the bottom line business value. You were told not to worry. We've engaged the best system integrators, and they said all is well. Has your IT organization become a black box where money goes in, but nothing comes out? Tactical Strategy Group's William Ulrich has seen every side of this story, from upfront happy talk to painful postmortems. Find out what's really going on. Visit tacticalstrategygroup.com and ask about TSG's Transformation Oversight Service. 
it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to the North Star. If you have a question or comment about the program, please send an email to WMMUlrich at TSGConsultingInc.com. That's WMMUlrich at TSGConsultingInc.com. Now, back to the North Star. Here again is William Ulrich. Welcome back to the North Star. I'm William Ulrich. You can reach me by LinkedIn, email, or my website. We're discussing re-envisioning how organizations define and automate work with my guests, Dana Coy and Keith Swenson. So I wanted to pick up here on a couple different things that are all related, but case management and then also the, uh, the concept of knowledge workers. So why don't we just start with uh, trying to put some definitioning around uh, case management? Okay. Um, case management is, uh, at this point in time in the industry, I think still uh, a somewhat fuzzy term. Uh, a lot of vendors have products that do this in different ways, and so it's not that easy to pin it down. But the main idea is that there exists a piece of work that we call a case um, that needs uh, to have people act upon it. And um, typically a case has state you know, it, it is going through some sort of process and it goes through steps um, and people will then act. So um, the kind of core essentials are the ability to model a reasonable, um, rich work environment that you're looking at this and you can work with it. Ideally, you want to be able to have multiple people working on something simultaneously and deal with conflicts of people working simultaneously. Um, you want to have some kind of modeling for the states. Um, and uh, it moves through to completion when it reaches its whatever the end state is for that particular process. And the difference here is, versus BPM is that the people control the transitions to a large extent, um, that you haven't planned out every possible transition. You have hopefully planned out all the possible states, but not necessarily all the different pathways you can get from one state to another. And when you deal with something um, uh, unpredictable, you can you can interact with it. I, th I think it'd be good to look at an example. And the example I often use is look at the work that's done in an emergency room. You have a patient that arrives at the emergency room and you, you have to start the process of working and you don't have any idea how the patient is going to be treated. You, you do not have a pre-planned process for how to handle that. But instead what happens is you have a doctor and the doctor will run a few tests. We'll have asked for a few tests to be run and then we'll make some decisions. So, okay, so now we're going to do a blood test. So you go do the blood test. When the results come back, the doctor looks at that again and says, okay, I think we should do a biopsy. And that's a very difficult decision, but you have an expert doing it and guiding the work. And what you end up actually doing is you're elaborating the process. You're elaborating the work that's to be done while the work is being done. And eventually, you're going to try to bring that case to closure. And this happens in all sorts of places. Legal cases are like this. Social cases are like this. There's, there's lots of examples where you just can't predict the process in advance. And all of those things you were talking about there, which are great, it's a great example, they, they're all things that all have states, right? The uh, patient is in a state yes. of alive, right? Or maybe <laughs> in trouble, uh, you know, there, there's a health condition which may have a state of unknown, right? 
so, so uh, you know, so you're going through and then you're going to have, you know, there's blood tests and there's all those other kinds of things that you're going to do. And then you're going to make decisions. The doctor will make decisions based on all of the different information coming in. All right. So, so that's actually, that's a good example. Now that's a field that actually does use the word case uh, as does the legal field, as does uh, a few other fields. Um, have you run into some challenges with the name in terms of uh, on a more on a more broad broad use basis in terms of misunderstanding it? A little bit. Um, as you said, there's a number of uh, industries that use the word case as a technical term, mm -hmm. and uh, people get kind of mixed up with casework as being mm -hmm. a social worker or something like that. Um, uh, we never did find a better word, and so that's the mm -hmm. word we picked as yeah. a least bad, if you will. Right. <laughs> Let's talk about knowledge workers. Um, a great example of doctors, right? But there's there's a lot of them out there in a lot of a lot of industries, right? Yeah. And and the numbers are significant, right? Is yeah, that that's right. A knowledge worker is anyone who does work that's not routine. Um, they're typically uh, they go to school, they get a lot of training, they learn uh, how to do something, and they're dealing with. Uh, very difficult decisions that, that are often based on things that, that are not really explicit. Uh, a lot of this knowledge is tacit knowledge, which exists in the minds of people and may not, in fact, be written down and passed around in, in, the, in the documents. The number of knowledge workers is going up. We used to have lots of people doing routine work because you needed to have people reading the screen and typing it in, as Dana mentioned earlier. Uh, typing pools used to exist. Uh, we used to actually move a lot of paper around. Um, much of that work has been automated. Much of that work has been eliminated. So here's the good news, is that more and more people are doing knowledge work than ever before. And organizations consist of a lot more knowledge workers than they had been. Uh, but the downside of that is that knowledge work is a little more stressful than routine work. So uh, we're a little bit more stressed out these days. And this has changed over the last, you know, well, a long time, de many decades. But even since you wrote the book, uh, if, if you really can predict a process and you can model it formally, uh, as we were talking about with BPM uh, then, and BPMN, and then what you do, which is business process modeling notation for everybody out there, uh, that, then you, you probably can automate it, right? And then some of those jobs become automated, which, which increases the percentage of knowledge workers over the other category, right? That is so, exactly what has happened, yes. That's yeah. and, that's right. and that's not changing. In fact, that's continuing. Is that, is that fair? That is correct. Okay. So the percentages keep shifting in, in those directions. Um, so uh, let's just do a little contrast here. Now, that happy path we talked about previously, that, that's, we, we don't make any assumptions with, with case management. Is that a fair statement? Uh, it, it varies. I mean, the, the, the degree of unknown in, or the unpredictability in a process varies. Um, there's a concept of emergent design um, where you start uh, automating a, a process when you don't know very much about it. But as you'll learn, um, that one of the, the, the buzzwords that I like is you, you add guardrails to your application, right? right. And what that means is that um, you start with something that has no constraints on where things can go. And you say, oh, well, you know, when we send people things down this particular pathway, it doesn't work well. Mm -hmm. So we're going to put in a block, a guardrail that says, don't go down that pathway. Or a confirmation that says, are you really sure you want to do that? Um, and so one thing that I've, I've always felt was a good way of doing it is build the simplest possible application with the most flexibility and then 
constrain it and add complexity as you use it and can gather data on how it's really working. Okay. In any kind of work, you're, you're gonna have a mixture of things. Uh, even for the doctor, he's gonna ask for a, a blood test or he's gonna ask for a uh, CAT scan or you know some sort of things. And, and a lot of those little pieces can be automated. Uh, same thing's true in the legal. Uh, you'll file a motion. The, you know, the, the process for filing a motion can be completely automated, but the decision to do so is something that needs to be done by the knowledge worker directly. So what we see is a migration towards a sort of a toolbox approach where you have a bunch of little automated uh, subroutines, if you want to call them that, and uh, then that toolbox is there for the knowledge worker to bring in different tools at different times and, and deploy them as, as they see fit. Okay. So, so the mix works. Uh, would you say that adaptive case management is more of a data-oriented approach uh, because of its dependency on states data? I would. Um, I'm not sure everybody in the industry would agree with me on that. Um, I, I've always felt that the, um, uh, the best starting point for development of case management applications is to start with the information model of, of what's what's in there. It isn't necessarily all traditional data modeling because there, there's also document attachments and things like that, mm -hmm. unstructured data as well as structured. But modeling the, uh, the information, um, what is the packet of information you're going to present to the knowledge worker for them to make their decisions, right, is to me the starting point. Um, Dana's done a lot of good work on that. And if you think about the toolbox approach, if you want, if you want a set of data to be useful to different tools and you want to be able to mix and match things, uh, what you need to do is include with the data enough semantic information that these various tools don't get mixed up about what a number means. Uh, you know, when you talk about a patient's temperature, you need to know a lot of details about when that temperature was was taken and for what period it applies to. And so your data model, if it's richer, then these various tools find it much, much easier to, to use that, leverage that, and, and you're more effective in that. So things okay. like history and, and, and analytics and, and, and states and types and so forth. Exactly. There's an awful lot of very uh, common attributes that you most everybody wants. You want an audit trail of who changed what. Sometimes you want to see who's looked at the data, right? They actually track that. Mm. Uh, you want to have a place where uh, people can have an unstructured discussion. You want to be able to interact with email. There's, so the, the, there's all these kind of components, and I call them building blocks that you can bring into the application. Not every application needs all of them. You, you do want to make it kind of uh, compositionally modeled. You want to pull these things into your application when you realize that your user community needs that functionality. Otherwise, you end up with a really wickedly complicated user interface with tools that never get used. But going back to the data model, you know, if, if the structured portions of your application, you know, some the doctor is looking at something and clicks a button that says, I want to order something. Mm -hmm. Well, that order should automatically pick up the patient's name, you know, should automatically pick up, you know, the current information that's necessary. And if you've got that kind of centralized data model that you can then write your, your BPM against that data model, you know where to find the information you need to start that going. So I, it so, comes to, back to that core. Yeah, and some of your colleagues who contributed to the Master in the Unpredictable uh, did write about uh, the importance of information. And you know, it, it certainly makes perfectly logical sense. If, if I don't have all the kinds of things you're talking about, Dana, I'm, I'm going to have some uh, some severe gaps uh, that I think are in there. Um, so, 
so that's something to think about, right? So if I'm a, a business leader and I'm, I'm listening to this and I say, well, these guys are telling me maybe the, what I'm using today, my processes, the, the models I'm using today don't work for everything, right? So what do I need to start thinking about as a business leader that would uh, start to move my thinking into more of an uh, adaptive case management sort of world? Well, you're going to want to use the right technology for the right thing. So there is work that is very routine. And to the most, to the extent that you can, you should automate that. I mean, don't, don't ask workers to do things over and over, you know, that, that, that there's not a lot of thinking about. Uh, save those people for more intelligent tasks. The other thing is that when you automate knowledge work, and if you do it improperly, if you make that naive model that overly constrains people, this is very, very obvious in the organization. The, the knowledge workers will tell you that, you know, they need to do things, maybe for legal reasons or for customary reasons or for all sorts of things. They need to do things and they can't do them. And they'll work around the system. So um, what I've noticed is that organizations on their first attempt, they don't see this, but after they've spent, you know, some time automating processes, it becomes really obvious the things that need to be flexible and need to be left open for the knowledge workers to be effective. And they will then move to adaptive case management or uh, uh, another simpler technology, production case management, which is a, uh, another kind of case management. Okay. Um, so so uh, that's good on the guardrail. So um, is, is the, the, there's a million and one reasons to have good inf solid information structure. Actually, we're gonna talk more next week with uh, another fellow about all that. Uh, but it seems to me that that adaptive case management is, is yet another reason to have a well-structured, well-organized set of data. Is that a fair statement? Yes, that is a totally fair okay. statement. Yeah, it, it's, it's, you would think that organizations wouldn't need that much motivation, but it, it is certainly one of them. <laughs> uh, you said something earlier, uh, Dane, I think you said it, uh, maybe you said it, uh, Keith, but on, you use the word flowcharts. I started my career using flowcharts and building my software that way. Uh, and, and it was if then logic. And um, my wife was looking over my shoulder, seeing a BPMN diagram one day in one of my presentations. And she goes, I thought they didn't use flowcharts anymore to write code because she took Fortran in college. Right. And, and I said, oh, they don't. And she goes, well, what is that? I said, that's what the, the business people now develop. And then they give that to the developers. So, so you do see that handoff, right? I mean, historically of, of BPMN models or just BPM models that aren't following the standard, handed off to technology uh, teams. Do you, do, is that something that you've seen and, and can comment on? I have sure. definitely seen it. Yeah, okay. absolutely. It, it, it's not an uncommon pattern to have uh, a set of people who are process analysts, mm -hmm. right? Um, separate from the people who are the process implementors. Yep. Um, you know, some of the better tools merge that, you know, that the, the, the model becomes the implementation. Mm -hmm. um, so that saves a communication step. Um, uh, the actual communication within the development teams and analysis teams is actually quite a bottleneck in, 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 in a lot of places. Um, so uh, Keith, you were about to add something. Well, that's right. It, when you have an organization and you've got 20 or 30 or 50 or, or 100 people and they're all interacting with each other, the patterns of interaction can be very, very complex. And these can be these can be coded in traditional languages, uh, Java, C-sharp, that sort of thing. But the state model is really, really complex. And it's very hard to see what the state model is. And it's very hard to maintain 
over the long term. However, this is a case where if you use the diagram, it helps to clarify this really complicated state model that can include things like, you know, what happens if this person doesn't show up to work this day and he's supposed to do this job? How do you reallocate that work to somebody else? All sorts of special conditions that need to be thought about there. Drawing the diagram makes the state model understandable, both to business users and to programmers. And then it also uh, helps to make it maintainable in the long term because the process is never finished. You're always improving the process, continual process of improvement. The organization, the organization is changing to adapt to new product lines and new market conditions. So you need to be able to maintain this over the long term. So the, the model really does help uh, to, to do that much better than traditional programming. These but I will point out that there's yeah, more than one kind of model, right? There's the BPMN cool. model, right? Which is the, the, the uh, kind of the flow of control. Right. Um, and that, but there's also a case modeling notation, which is really more of a state transition diagram, right? right? And having a pictorial representation of your states and the transitions um, is another way of communicating, right? And you think about these things, um, independent of the implementation, the communication with your user community to show that you understand what they're doing and for them to confirm that your vision is correct is very difficult. I, I mean, I, most projects, you know, maybe, you know, not just dozens, but, you know, a hundred hours, 200 hours worth of work to figure out what the thing is supposed to do is not really unusual, right? The, there was a big effort to define the case management modeling notation, and this was an alternative modeling notation, and it did a couple things. It, it did free you from the tyranny of the line, so you had activities that were started by a global condition. So if that condition was met, you, it would then start that activity for you. And that's a, that's a good idea. However, uh, CUMN was kind of a flash in the pan. I mean, there are some good ideas in it, but um, the, I haven't really seen it take off. And mm. so there's a variety of different approaches, but I'm really seeing case management, not so much modeled, but really more of a toolkit that you bring together right. at runtime. Yeah. Although I've yeah, seen people use, yeah. you know, like Visio, just drawing boxes and, and, and for the states, just a way of to, I mean, it, not necessarily a formal notation, but just a way of communicating, here's the list of all the states that are in this application. Um, the, They've done it lots of different ways. Okay, we'll uh, pick up on this after break. You're listening to the North Star. I'm William Ulrich. We're discussing re-envisioning how organizations define and automate work with my guests, Dana Coy and Keith Swanson. You can contact Dana at dana.coy at gmail.com and Keith at LinkedIn at purplehillsbooks.com. Uh, we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Your organization is spending seven, eight, or even nine figures annually on transformation programs, and you're questioning the bottom line business value. You were told not to worry. We've engaged the best system integrators, and they said all is well. Has your IT organization become a black box where money goes in, but nothing comes out? Tactical Strategy Group's William Ulrich has seen every side of this story, from upfront happy talk to painful post-mortems. Find out what's really going on. Visit tacticalstrategygroup.com and ask about TSG's Transformation Oversight Service. 
Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Are you having trouble articulating your strategic objectives? Not sure if your program investments are aligned to your strategic vision? Wondering why your six, seven, and eight-figure program investments seem to evaporate into thin air, even as your business teams are left to add more people, take on more risk, and take heat from unhappy customers? Tactical Strategy Group's William Ulrich can help ensure that your strategic objectives translate into sustainable, successful investments. For more information, visit our website at tacticalstrategygroup.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to the North Star. If you have a question or comment about the program, please send an email to wmmulrich at tsgconsultinginc.com. That's wmmulrich at tsgconsultinginc.com. Now, back to the North Star. Here again is William Ulrich. Welcome back to the North Star. I'm William Ulrich. You can reach me on LinkedIn by email or at my website. We're discussing re-envisioning how organizations define and automate work with Dana Coy and Keith Swenson. Um, I did want to wrap up our notation conversation. Uh, notation, people like notations, right? So uh, they, they, they like to put their hands around something. Uh, they like to have something they can go to a training course and learn and come out and say, I, I can do this now. Uh, would, would you say that the uh, case management needs to evolve in terms of notations? Would, is that a fair, fair statement? Yes, I think people are seeing notations that are more and more industry specific. So there are certain kinds of things that you need to do in certain industries. And um, there, there's, there's a wide variety of notations. Uh, again, it all comes down to flow charting. So it's all based on the basic concept of flow charting and the, you know, the diamonds for decisions seems to be pretty, pretty standard. Uh, and I do urge people to learn uh, BPMN. I think it's a good skill to pick up. Uh, but when you get into the, the details of designing these uh, processes, specifically in, in case management, I think there's a wide variety that, that you go to that tend to be specific to the industry or where you're working. I, I do agree with that. Um, you know, the, the tools that I've produced, the application platforms I've produced, you know, we use BPMN as the notation for designing and developing your process. We used an early version of CMMN uh, for the case model. I think we may be the, we're the only vendor to do that, but I'm not sure that's true. There weren't very many and it didn't catch on. Um, but when I'm actually working with customers, looking at their applications, you know, a lot of times we just describe it in words um, and tables, right? Um, here's the list of all the states. Um, for, the for the purposes of communication with the user community, um, that's a common, everybody speaks the language, right? You know, you, you can do, if you describe it to them in their own words, they understand it. Um, and then when we go back to the tools to actually build the application, you know, we'll, we'll model the fixed portion, you know, the, the structured portions of the application using uh, BPMN. 
but the user community never really even sees that um, in most of the cases where I'm, I'm working with them. I get it's the just, fixed part, right? That's the 20 to 40%. But yeah. if I start using those same models to, to model the uh, unpredictable portions, am I not backing myself into a corner? Uh, no, I, I, it, going back to the original premise, um, no, yeah. most of your application is not a BPMN model, right? right? Um, but so, for example, going back to that metal case, um, when the doctor is looking at the case folder for the patient, he sees all this information about the patient. He says, I want to order a test. He's going to click a button, going to get a form that says what kind of test you want, what are the conditions, click a button. The actual ordering of that test may very well be a BPMN uh, process that's triggered to start that test going, right? So um, I, I, the, the model I have of case management is a little, you know, a lot of people think I'm gonna deliver a case to the person and the person's gonna work on it. I actually think of it a bit differently. I think the case is the center of the spider web and it reaches out and pulls people in to look at itself, right? It says, mm -hmm. hey, look at me, you have something to do here. And, um, but, you know, or, or it says, I wanna start this process and it may have half a dozen different structured processes running off in parallel doing different things initiated by people as they work on it. So it's definitely a, 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 most applications I've seen have been somewhat hybrid, not okay. either all case management or all structured. Um, Dana, you and I had had a offline conversation a while back about things like states and events and task-based models. Uh, any uh, yes. comments on that? Sure. Um, so uh, most of the systems that support case management have the concept of a task. So a task is something that you're asking a person to do. And um, there is usually a way for one person to say, I need something done and we'll create a task. And so now you get a list of you know, my work that I have to do that is all the tasks that have been assigned to you. Um, sometimes you don't even need tasks. Sometimes it's just purely the state. And based on the state, there's a list of all the cases that are in that state. And you go and you find the piece of work and you say, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna work on it. Um, Tasks are one of those building blocks that are useful to in some applications. You know, sometimes you want a discussion. Sometimes you want you know certain features. Um, tasks are pretty commonly useful, and so having a rich uh, task set of task functionality that you can assign these out, the ability to create an ad hoc task on the fly is is a critical component of any case manager system that says. Nobody ever pre-thought of this ahead of time. I, I just need you to do this piece of work and I'm gonna assign that task to you on the fly. No one's ever seen it. Maybe no one will ever see it again. As well as to have a library of tasks that are automatic. When it enters the state, we're gonna kick off these three tasks every time because those are the guardrails. We've learned by doing this application that these things need to get done. And then you've got the, the intermediate ground of tasks that are optional, but predefined and can be pulled in as needed. So where are we with automation? Uh, can we can we talk about that a little bit? Because we, we've been talking about what what sounds like at least on the surface to, to maybe the uninitiated to be uh, maybe a, a new and better way of thinking about some of these kinds of th these unpredictable uh, work work that has to be done. Uh, wh where are we with uh, being able to bring some automation to the table to help um, uh, help people with that? So certainly it's a combination. Um, there, there are some aspects of any job that can be automated. And for those jobs, if there's multiple people involved, uh, BPMN becomes a nice nice way to automate that. And so I think we understand that as well as automating cross servers. Mm -hmm. uh, but then at the case management level, and I see it exactly as Dana described, the case is in the center, uh, reaching out to these processes. And in the center, what you need is good communications between people. 
You need to have the documents there. You need to be able to bring people in to there. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, that means you also need good access control. So, so controlling the access to these documents, because many times they're very sensitive. So mm -hmm. you don't want to just open to the public, but you want the right people to get in to see the right things at the right time. And as, as uh, Dana mentioned, the tasking is, is really, so on the fly, being able to just assign a task to somebody. Mm -hmm. I think there's some new directions that people should be looking at that are worth mentioning briefly. And the first is what I call emergent synthetic processes. And these are processes that are not designed by anybody, but instead the various parties and the various service providers define their requirements and you know what they need and what they will provide. And then it's possible to synthesize the process on the fly. And this works very much like if you wanna drive from point A to point B, you can get a GPS device to find a route on how to get there because it's using the map and it'll it'll figure that out. So we can do the same thing for business processes and the actual business process might be different every time, but it's based on requirements that are that are well known. The second area you should be looking is machine learning. Uh, this is a combination of process mining, which is itself fairly well understood technology, and putting that together with driving the process. So, for, you know, for decades, machine learning uh, didn't really do a lot for us, but now machine learning actually works. It's being used all over the place. Uh, Google displaced Yahoo as the leader in web searches about 20 years ago. And I think that machine generated processes are likely to kick human process designers off the horse. Uh, and we're starting to see this, all sorts of work, uh, FedEx, uh, truck routes, equipment scheduling, Amazon shipment routing, all of this stuff is now being optimized by machine learning. And so take, take a look at that because I think that's gonna replace traditional process management in the future. So can we start to automate, and let's just say talking about case management or not, but we can start to automate the work of, and, and this is happening, so it's not like a, a, a total open question, but the, we, we're automating the work of knowledge workers today, uh, right? And we're, we're starting to To some do extent, um, yeah. yes. I mean, what, what you're seeing is um, cases that are automatable, you know, the percentage of them is going up as things are getting smarter about how you automate. You get uh, cases that, uh, as you create the case and initiates it at some point in time, the, the rules can kick and say, oh, we know what to do with this case. No, pe nobody needs to look at it anymore. And so um, you get the straight through processing, right? No, no human has to touch it. But I think with most every process, there will always be the exception cases, the mm -hmm. cases that are too complicated, that are outside the bounds of what we've encountered before, which then goes in front of a person. And so, again, I, I think of it as, a, as an evolutionary process. You start by, by automating you know, the, the, the work that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. People look at it and you iterate, you iterate, you look for opportunities to improve. And as you do that, less and less of the work needs to be presented into human beings. People I learn, think, machines learn, right? Go ahead. Yeah, exactly. I think uh, General Eisenhower said it, said it best. He said, plans are worthless, mm -hmm. but planning is everything. And he went on to say that the very definition of emergency is that it's unexpected. Therefore, it's not going to happen the way that you plan. So handling emergencies, handling things as they come up is always going to be something that you have to do on the fly. And it's always going to be a knowledge worker who has experience and, and you know, has a, a good grasp of what's going on to be able to direct that. And we want to make systems that allow those people to act quickly, effective, communicate what they want to do to others. Uh, and, and then to follow up and make sure that it gets done, right? And, and that will always be part of the work. 
And then there's another part that will be automated. And, and so the, the two will work together um, yes. in the future. I think the spectrum is how much, right? So where, where yes. does it slide over, right? So, so let's say that, again, I asked this earlier, but I want to get back to it. But I'm a business leader. Um, I, I think I like what I'm hearing. I'm hearing some different things that I haven't heard before about, about uh, more intelligent uh, management of work. Uh, so, so, you know, are there some top ideas you would recommend to, to organizations as they start to think about, about trying to get more advanced in, in their modeling and their, their, their implementation of work? Well, simply put, uh, remember that thinking is important. Thinking matters yes. in the workplace. Yeah. And don't, don't try to eliminate thinking. Thinking is good. And uh, people are really good at it. And so uh, leverage that, leverage expertise, lever leverage experience. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, but don't try to automate that away. Right. I think it comes back down to the, the old adage about the hammer, right? Yeah, understand what your hammer is good for and what it's not good for. Go out there and shop around, see what other tools are available for you and um, what you might apply to problems your hammer is not good for. And it, it does sound like the jury's still out on some notation. So, you know, there's there's different things that still might be emerging. And Keith, you raised some real interesting things about emergent synthetic processes and machine learning. So uh, I would say as an industry, uh, we have some ways to go. But where do you see things uh, over the next year or so? Or, well, let's say five years. These things, you know, go slow. Um, the... the you're talking about people who are, this is their work, right? And um, it, I think it's, it, it, it is a steady improvement. It is not a big leap, right? And so I, I see businesses finding better tools, using better tools, um, understanding what, what not to do. Um, and every enterprise has a, has a growth path to go down. I think we should look at the way that uh, all business and all enterprise is changing in general. We see a lot more people contracting and being brought in for specific jobs. It used to be that you'd sign up for a, for a big corporation and you stay with that your whole career. Now we're seeing uh, people that are available to do um, contract work uh, on the fly. And we're seeing the ability to bring those people together, either through an app-based uh, technology or, you know, or web-based or, or whatever it is. It's much, much easier to bring people together, accomplish a goal, and then let them go their various ways. And, and so large companies are going to be less important, and it's going to be more of a job shop world. And this kind of case management and process technology is going to support that. Uh, thank you. That. Yeah, thank you. Uh, my guests today have been Dana Coy and Keith Swenson. Uh, we've been discussing, uh, discussing re-envisioning how we do work. Uh, I want to thank them very much. The material that we referenced today is on my website. If you go to tacticalstrategygroup.com to my radio show page. Next week, we have Seth Early of Early Information Science uh, talking about AI-powered enterprise. You've been listening to the North Star. I'm William Ulrich, your host. You can contact me by LinkedIn email or at my website. Thanks for joining me today. I'll talk to you all next week. Thank you for tuning in this week to the North Star. Please join host William Ulrich for another edition of the program next Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll continue our discussion on strategy execution then. 